0: The following comes to you, compliments of Born to Serve Ministries. Born to Serve Ministries is dedicated to the spreading of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, we trust that today will be the day that you turn to Him in true repentance of your sin and come to Him in faith and trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once stated, Consecrate these last minutes to lonely thought, and if deep repentance be bred in you, it will be well. And if it lead to a humble faith in Jesus, it will be best of all. O oh, see that this day pass not away, and you an unforgiven spirit. Born to Serve Ministries can be found on the internet at wwwe the number 2, S-E-R-V-E.org. text verse is Proverbs 20, and verse 1. It says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And I do want to uh, speak to you tonight on the deadly deception of alcoholic drink. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good preaching we've heard already tonight. And God, I pray that You would search our hearts. I pray that You'd help us to be fortified against the attacks of the devil in our time. And I pray, Lord, particularly for our young people. I pray friends, who might be listening on the radio, God, that You would help us to see through the deception. And Lord, be standing clear, keep our lives clean and right before You in this area. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God, who created this universe, is a God of truth. God made all things good, and in that day truth and holiness were the ruling law of the very character of this universe. But a being who was the highest of God's creatures, the highest of God's creation, rebelled against God, and in doing so, Lucifer became the incarnation of wickedness. In hatred against God and lusting after the glory that belongs only to God, he invented and mastered the lie. And the purpose of his lying was to deceive souls in order to turn them against Jesus Christ, the only Savior for their souls. And Jesus spoke of this in John 8, verse 44 and 45. He said, He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. So there's Satan's work and the result of it, right in one passage. Satan deceived Eve and he persuaded her to sin, and Adam with her and since that time, mankind has been subject to deception. As the world has gone on in deception, the darkness of human existence has only increased. According to Bible prophecy, I believe that we are in the last days before the return of Jesus Christ and the great judgment. And the Bible warns us that the deception will be rampant in our day. Indeed, that the world is characterized by deception in our time. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13 it says, "An evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And every way we turn our face today, deception uh, is in the way, and our society recognizes and even seems to take uh, delight in whatever spin they can put on things. That's what it's all about. What's what, putting spin on something? And our text here warns us about a deception that's been taking place since the time of Noah. And that deception is deception created by alcoholic drinks. Folks, that deception is not limited to a few people, a few unfortunate souls. But it's a danger that presents itself to rich and to poor, to educated and the uneducated, young and old, all ages and all classes, all races, all nations. God says, whoever to see thereby is not wise." Now, for centuries, Bible preachers have preached and warned against the danger of alcohol. And so effective and so prevalent was that preaching at one time in our nation that our nation passed an amendment to the Constitution of the United States that forbade the manufacture, sale, transportation, and possession of alcoholic beverages. The times have changed and deception is one today and not only is alcohol freely made but is advertised and it's consumed in our society, not all those things, but even once great Christian schools, places like Wheaton used to be great for God. They now allow their students studying for the ministry to drink alcoholic beverages. As recent as this year, a respected independent Baptist pastor who's on the fundamental mission board in North Carolina, wrote in his church paper, this he said: "This it took a while, but it gradually dawned on me that the Bible doesn't forbid the use of wine, only its abuse. One cannot honestly make the Bible require abstinence. The Bible assigns moderate drinking to the category of Christian liberty, and leaves the decision to each believer. Churches are forbidden to exclude believers who exercise this liberty." End quote. According to this independent Baptist pastor, our church constitution, Calvary Baptist Church, is in violation of the Word of God because it requires members to covenant to abstain from all use of intoxicating drinks to the beverage. Yeah, right. Now, friends, is it true that wine is no longer a mocker, that it doesn't? Any more cause? Any more cause? have contempt for the word of God. Is that true? Has strong drink ceased to raise? Has it ceased to bring trouble to the families and societies and churches and the homes and businesses and everything else? Is alcohol now become the suitable beverage for those who are saved by the grace of God? Is it a perversion of Scripture? to sound the warnings of this text right here and require that Christians be total abstainers from alcoholic drinks? Well, let's look at Scripture and answer those questions. And I want to look carefully. I want to admit some things that the Bible does say about alcohol. But as we do, I believe that we'll see that though God permitted at one time the cautious use of fermented drinks that the certain damnation of drunkards and the destructive deception of moderate drinking, so-called, and the, practice, the practical outworking of Christian law prove that the social drinking of alcohol is an indefensible and disastrous sin. And therefore, every Christian should adopt and strictly observe a position of total abstinence from alcoholic drinks. I want us to talk about, first of all, the unwise argument for alcohol. Probably many of you are hearing an argument for alcohol from Christians today. Maybe even some fundamentalists, maybe some independent Baptists. So we're going to talk about, first of all, the unwise argument for alcohol. Never to consider the overwhelming argument for abstinence. The unwise argument for alcohol let's first acknowledge the Bible use of alcohol. Listen to these verses. And you may want to jot them down. In Genesis 14, verse 18, it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Or Deuteronomy 14, verse 26, And thou shalt bestow that money for whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, for oxen, or for sheep, or for wine, or for strong drink, or for whatsoever thy soul desireth. And thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice thou and thine household. And then Luke 10.34, which says, And went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Now Genesis tells us that when Melchizedek, the priest of God, came to Abraham to worship God, in that worship he used bread and wine. That's the Hebrew word, yayin. In Deuteronomy, Israel was told that when they came to worship the Lord at the temple, that they could take their tithe money and buy wine, yayin, same word, or strong drink, shakar. That's the Hebrew word, to worship God. We understand the word today, wine, we understand it refers to the juice of grapes. That is fermented. That's the way we take the word wine today. The Hebrew that's translated strong drink refers to a fermented drink made from barley, millet, dates, or fruits other than grapes. it'd be any other alcoholic beverage made from anything other than grapes. In other words, the Bible plainly said that alcoholic drinks were used not only as everyday beverage, but in the worship of God. In the New Testament, in Luke, the Bible tells that the Good Samaritan poured in wine. It's a a Greek word, oinot. He poured in wine with oil to treat the wounds of the man who was beaten up. And apparently the reason for doing this was because the wine was alcoholic and therefore acted as an antiseptic in preventing infection. Every time the English word wine appears in the New Testament, it translates the same Greek word. Except one. And that's in Acts chapter 2, verse 13, which says, Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. Now, the two, words, two English words, new wine, translate the word glucose juice newly pressed from grapes, but obviously, in that context, it would have been alcoholic. Because they were accusing these men of being drunk. So, without any doubt, saints in Bible days drank beverages that contained alcohol and could make some drunk. However, I want us to consider some different circumstances between Bible days and our days. I want you to write down these verses right here. Isaiah 65 verse 8 says this, Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster... It's important that you note that. As a new wine is found in the cluster, and one saith, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it. And it goes on. Then Genesis 49, verse 11. Binding his foal into the vine, and his ass is cold to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. The comparison there. Then Song of Psalm chapter 8, verse 2, says this. I would lead thee and bring thee into my mother's house who would instruct me. I would cause thee to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. Again, comparison made. Now, this Baptist pastor that I referred to earlier made the following argument in that same article that I was reading from. He said this, Formerly, I believed that wine in the Bible meant two different beverages depending on the context. When wine made people drunk, it was alcoholic. When wine was portrayed in a good sense, it was great use. Unfortunately, this simple solution does not hold up to examination. A careful study of all the references to wine in the Bible reveals that the same wine that made Noah drunk was bought by Melchizedek to Abraham to worship. It may be convenient to say that all bad wine was fermented and good wine fresh, But the original Hebrew and Greek words studied in context reveal this isn't so. Well, folks, apparently this pastor did not do a careful study of all the references in the Bible. In Isaiah 65, it clearly says it speaks of wine in the cluster. The juice of grapes will not ferment while it's in a grape. And so, though it calls it wine, it's referring to juice. It cannot be an alcoholic drink. It cannot be an alcoholic juice even. Wine in the cluster is juice. It also is clearly, obviously, an unfermented drink in other places. For example, Proverbs 3, verse 10. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy precious shall burst out with new wine. But well, when you're stomping those grapes that's coming out, it's not wine then. It's not alcoholic as we think of it. It's fresh juice. It's bursting out with juice. And so that word there, tarosh, the Hebrew word tarosh, can mean either fermented or unfermented juice from grapes. The English word juice only appears one time in the King James Bible. That Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 2. Listen to it again. I would lead thee and bring thee to my mother's house who would instruct me, I would cause thee to drink of spiced wine and of the juice of my pomegranate. Did you note that? Here, spiced wine, it's the word Gagin again, is equated with juice of pomegranate. So we have an alcoholic drink, notice, called juice. The word there translated juice is 9-6, uh, which means new wine or sweet wine. It may be fermented or it may not be. You have to look at the context. Now notice again, Genesis 49, verse 11. It says this, Binding his foal into the vine, and his ass's colt under the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grace. Well, what's the blood of grace? It's juice. Juice. But we don't have the word juice there. And when they use the word wine, it's a broad word. It can mean fermented drink or it can mean juice, just like we would. In fact, if you look in the Greek and Hebrew dictionaries, many of which are produced by lost men, but who are language scholars, they have no reason to say this unfermented they all indicate that wine in the Bible may be either fermented or unfermented drink. All of them say that. Now, I don't point this out to argue that they didn't drink fermented drinks in the Old Testament. They did. Clearly, shakar, or what's called strong drink, was a fermented drink. But my point is this. The alcohol and the circumstances of the day were quite different from ours. You're probably wondering where I'm going on this, but you'll see in a minute. The lack of refrigeration, the warmth of their climate made it difficult to keep juices from fermenting. And therefore, what they called wine was very often made with no intention of creating an alcoholic drink. It would naturally become that way. And Jesus referred to this in Luke chapter 5, verse 37. He said this And no man putteth new wine into old bottles. Else the new wine will burst the bottles and be sealed and the bottles shall perish. Of course the bottle's not made from glass in their days, made of wine up from our animal skin. When animal skin gets old, it loses its elasticity. And if you put grape juice in a skin bottle, and it's out in the sun, what's gonna happen? It's gonna ferment, it's gonna expand, it's gonna burst that bottle, that skin bottle. You see. And so their wine and their strong drink were only mildly alcoholic in most cases. Not only was the alcoholic content weak, but they, were, they would often take that wine, that fermented now juice or whatever, and mix it with water. And so really the, the wine was very often used as an antiseptic to the water they were drinking. But it's essential that we understand this. They did not have distilled liquors. And that's the big difference. Distillation. You know what distillation is? Probably some of you drink distilled water. You take water, you boil it off, something catches the steam, and, and then that condenses. And then you have pure water, distilled water. And all the impurities are left back where it was boiling to start with. Well, uh, you can just, that's the way you make strong alcoholic beverages. You take that alcoholic drink and you boil it. Only alcohol boils at uh, 172 degrees. Water boils at 212 degrees. So you heat that around 172 degrees and the water and whatever other things you have in there stay there, but the alcohol burns, uh, evaporates out, and you catch that and it becomes pure alcohol. Naturally fermented wine or strong drink can be anywhere from 2% to 12%. In a drink. Whereas if you distill alcoholic drinks, they can be up to 95% alcohol. Like Everclear. One martini at lunch. Say you're on a business meal and you drink one martini at lunch. That's equal to at least seven beers or seven glasses of wine. Maybe up to 20 beers or 20 glasses of wine. you understand the difference? They call binge drinking drinking five beers at one time. And drinking just one martini is more than binge drinking. That's a big difference, isn't it? Historically, Christians did drink these mildly alcoholic beverages because they could not preserve juices very well and because the alcohol helped to prevent disease. However, when this distillation came into... To, uh, into Europe in the Middle Ages, things began to change. Here, you have one glass of distilled whiskey or rum or brandy that could render somebody drunk with just one drink, one glass, and they'd be drunk. The people were becoming drunkards in an alarming rate. The families were being destroyed. Uh, whole villages were sometimes being just becoming a bunch of drunkards because of this distillation. And Lord, behold, about that time too, we also had the Industrial Revolution coming along. Greater use of machinery, transportation by cars, and the devastating effects of alcohol were multiplied. And God foresaw these developments a long time ago, and He gave warnings about even the moderate use of alcohol. But when distilled beverages created catastrophic problems, some began what is known as the temperance movement—that is, just try to control how much alcohol we drink. But those who are wise argued for total abstinence. And our day is a completely day from Bible times, and for that reason, God knew the danger and God gave some prophetic warnings. So, what are the clear warnings of God about alcohol? Well, we have one here in Proverbs, Proverbs twenty, verse one: "Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise." Or how about Hosea four, verse eleven: is. And wine, and new wine, take away the heart. 5 verse 31, verses 4 and 5. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the inflicted. That's not talking about distilled liquor. That's talking about the common low-grade alcoholic drink. They're not supposed to drink it. Kings are not supposed to. Or how about Leviticus 10, verses 9 and 10? Do not drink wine, nor strong drink. Thou nor thy sons with thee when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, and that you may put the difference between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean. Now, though alcoholic drinks were mild in Babel days, God said that wine deceives and that it led souls astray and it brought raging trouble into their lives. He warned us that even new wine, if enough was consumed, could destroy the heart and soul of an individual just like sexual prostitution. Are we going to argue for moderacy and sexual prostitution? Whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart? We're going to say it's hard to take a little bit of drink then, but, well, we better not be engaged in, in whoredom. God says both of them take away the heart. God told people that their civil leaders like kings should not drink wine or beer because it would cause them to discard God's law and to pervert judgment. In fact, God told the priest, if you come in to minister and you've been drinking an alcoholic beverage, I'm going to kill you. Without any reservation, I can say that biblically, the argument for wine is unwise. In fact, there's an overwhelming argument for abstinence. Now let's look at four of them tonight. First of all, there is the declared damnation of drunkards. First Corinthians 6, verse 10, the Bible says, "...nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers..." nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. In Galatians 5.21, the Bible says, Envyings, murderers, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the Bible is clear that drunkards do not have eternal life, but they will spend eternity in hell. In fact, the Bible gives five different words to describe and condemn the practice of drinking so that someone becomes intoxicated. Galatians 5.21 there, the word drunkenness is the word messe. In 1 Peter chapter 4, there are three words. Banqueting, which is called carousing. Then there's excess of wine. Then there's the word reveling. All three words refer to drinking alcoholic beverages. Luke 21.34 is the word surfeiting. That's a word that refers to indulgence that leads to a hangover. Five different words in the New Testament. Now, folks, let me ask you to consider two questions with me tonight. What does it take to get drunk? And then, secondly, when does moderation become intoxication? The answer is it's different for different people, depending on size, depending on genetics. And we have a guy in our church named Sam Jones. He's about 6'4", weighs about 250 or maybe 260, I don't know now. He's getting a middle-aged thing and gaining weight like the rest of us. We also have a guy in our church named Billy Arthur. Billy's about three feet tall. He's a midget. Now, which one do you think would get drunk first if they started matching glass for glass? Well, obviously, the bigger guy would, would take him more drinks, right? Maybe. You see, the bigger guys, granddaddy and his daddy, were both drunkards. Genetically. It might not take him but one time until he becomes a drunkard. If that has been passed on through his genes, through the judgment that God gives, you never know, friends, what it take to get you drunk. What would cause you to be an alcoholic, as we call them? You don't know. If God consigns drunkards to hell, are you willing to take a chance at drinking? Today we call them, again, drunkards, we call them alcoholics. And one of the recognized characteristics of alcoholics is that He won't admit that He has a problem. He has an addiction that indicates he's dead in sin, but because his soul is captured by alcohol, he can't admit it. The damnation of drunkards is a powerful argument for total abstinence. Second argument. And that is the demonstrated destruction of alcohol. Let's just look at a few examples of the Bible. Would you turn back to Genesis chapter 9 with me? The demonstrated destruction of alcohol. In Genesis chapter 9 and verse 20, Genesis 9, verse 20 says, And Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be unto his brethren. There's a lot that went on there that we don't know all about. I know this wine was the cause of it. Turn to chapter 19. 19. Genesis 19 and verse 31. And the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old. There's not a man in the earth to come in unto us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he perceived not when she lay down till when she arose. Look at verse 36. Thus were both the daughters allotted with child by their father. Turn to Proverbs chapter 23. We're just going to skip hit a few here. Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs 23 and verse 19. Hear thou, my son, and be wise, and guide thine heart in the way. Be not among wine-dibbers. Well, you're not among drunkards and drinkers. I don't know how you can drink, period. But be not among wine-divers, among riotous eaters of flesh. For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Right down to verse 29. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contention? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine... They that go to seek mixed wine, look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moves itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent, and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. And then turn over to Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 7. Isaiah 28 and verse 7. But they also have erred through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness, so that there is no clean place. Folks, you think about this, out of millions, perhaps billions of people that are alive, before the flood, one man found grace in the eyes of the Lord. One man built an ark and delivered his family from the judgment that God sent and destroyed everybody on the face of this earth. Was he a godly man? That man, because he got drunk, led to the cursing of his grandkids. Because of his carnality, Lot, A saved man. He was allowed to be made drunk because he didn't have some proper standards. He was allowed to be made drunk by his daughters, and they committed the most despicable sexual sin he could commit. That couldn't have happened if he was a total saint. He would have never done that in his white mind. No one can argue that he or she is spiritual enough, spiritually mature enough to be certain that he or she can handle an alcoholic drink if Noah couldn't do it. Which of you could? First Corinthians 10, verse 12, the Bible says, "Let Therefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. But I think it's appropriate that we consider what the Bible documents about the destruction of alcohol so that our children... Their our children know how degrading it is. Proverbs tells us that the social drink of the wealthy businessman will bring him to poverty. That it will cause him, even a moral man, to lust after women who are not his wife. It will lead men in places where there are going to be fights, where they're going to get beaten up, but in the morning they won't even remember what happened. Because of alcohol has destroyed their... Short-term memory. In fact, it will so addict them, and while it's robbing them and beating them, destroying their health and destroying them of everything else, they're losing their family, they're losing their business, everything else. They can't wait to the next weekend to do it again. God said that even His priests could be led astray, so they don't follow His word, and they're so drunk that they wall in their own bodies. The beer commercials on TV, you know, are, they look so fun. But you know, I've seen men lying in the ditch in their own filth, bobbing them all in the filth, snot running out their noses, just like animals. Brother Wright over here is from our church. He used to work in a rescue mission. He could tell you about men who have gone through delirium tremens, whose bodies they shake and they are so... They seem to be controlled by demons. And they would do anything just to have one drop of something to drink, some alcoholic beverage, just a drop. You know, I went to a, a state school in college, an athletic dorm, and I used to get up on go to church on Sunday morning and Saturday nights, a big party night. And more than one time, I'd get up and Push the button on the elevator to get on the elevator and I had to get spare because that elevator was full of vomit. or somebody been having a, a good time. A good time. I know of girls that have been raped. I've had men friends that were killed. I know, why has it been beaten? All because alcohol changed people and influenced them to do things they would not normally do. Statistics show that 95% of men in prison drink alcohol. And that it was alcohol is a major, a definite factor in 60% of all crimes. Why? Because a lot of times they wouldn't do those things unless they, until they get themselves souped up a little bit. You ask Kevin Jones over there in the in Russia. In the Arctic. You ask him what has done to the workforce in Russia. Guys, it won't work. They don't even feel like working. They don't even think about work because of alcohol. Vodka. You ask Gary Forney about how many Arctic men die from alcohol poisoning or freeze to death because they're drunk. I tell you, the structure that's counted by alcohol, it, 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 it can't be counted. Alcohol lets loose the evil of the human heart. And folks, that's a destructive evil. A third argument against or for total abstinence. And that's the dangerous deception of alcohol. Here in Proverbs chapter 20, it says... Uh, I've forgotten what it says here now. Wine is a mocker and strong drinkers raging. And whosoever deceives thereby is not wine. And then also in Proverbs 23, verses 31-33, to 33, it says this, Look not upon the wine when it is red, when it gives its color in the cup, when it, comes, when it moves itself aright, it's at the last it bites like a serpent, and stingeth like an adder. Thine eye shall behold strange women, and thy heart shall utter perverse things. Now, if you've never been around drunkards, it's very easy to think that could never happen to you. But you're wrong. God tells that people are deceived by wine. They're deceived by strong drinks. They get attracted to it somehow, and then it bites them like a snake. It usually starts, I think, when a friend or a business associate perhaps tells them, you know, that one drink, it, it, it won't hurt you. it just relax you a little bit. You'll feel better. You'll feel more at ease. Just one drink won't bother you. You're not going to be like different from everybody else. Come on, just have, I'll buy you drinking, you'll be all right. At some point, they'll yield, and they may not over drink, but they get caught by the deception of alcohol. And they may think that they're all right at that point, but they don't understand the effects of alcohol, nor do they understand the purpose of those who leave them to drink. You know, Uh, Richard C. Cabot, M.D., is a professor of clinical medicine at Harvard University, and he wrote this. The drinker doesn't usually try to drive when he's drunk. Those accidents are due to the moderate, or what is ordinarily called the temperate, use of alcohol, in amounts that would not disturb a man's speech or power to walk. It is noticeable in no way until it comes to the handling of such a machine as an automobile, which demands the quick and accurate coordination of eye and hand, the coordination which is upset even by a moderate and temperate use of alcohol. Temperate drinking is thus more dangerous than excessive drinking as a cause of automobile action. When a guy's only had a little bit to drink, but he can still walk and speak, pray, and so forth. That's when really he's dangerous, when he gets behind the wheel. A small amount of alcohol will loosen your morals just enough so that you'll be open to a temptation you wouldn't regard otherwise. You young people, you listen to me carefully. The person that encourages you to drink is not your friend. In fact, they probably had some very wicked motives for in doing that. Could I give you one? In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth thy bottle to him, and maketh him drunken also. Why? That thou mayest look on their nakedness. Any of you have ever been to state university? You know what sorority is about, fraternity is about. Have these big parties, and there's a lot of alcohol that goes on there, and it's for one reason—not just to get drunk, to take advantage of some woman. That's what it's all about. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 13. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and made him drunk. And even and at even, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of the Lord, but went not down to his house. Here was David trying to break the conviction of a great man, Uriah. What did he use? Alcohol. Now, this was a, He was some kind of a man. He wouldn't do it anyway. Even when he was drunk, he wouldn't do it. But David knew what the tool was. It was alcohol. That's what would get a man to break and to lose his moral conviction. Remember, the best commercials. The funniest. The ones with the most attractive women. The most attractive men. The commercial with the most money put behind them. The commercials that promote alcohol. And it's all deception. that comes from hell. The fourth and final one found in Romans chapter 14. Would you turn there with me? And that is the demanded disuse of alcohol. The demanded disuse of alcohol. Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 is a great chapter on Christian liberty. And notice what it says about alcohol in verse 21. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Let me ask you this. What if I could moderately drink alcohol all my life and never get drunk? Then I could be a pastor and not be given to wine, as some would interpret that, Titus 1.7. Would that be all right for me then to drink, if I could drink and never get drunk? Suppose I control my wine, but I invite one of our church members over who used to be a drunkard before he got saved. And so we sit down at the table. We're talking about the things of the Lord. And then they see me drink a beer. Or they they see me open the refrigerator. Man, I don't even offer it to him. They open my refrigerator and there's a big container of wine there. Or suppose he comes to our church. Here's a guy that was a drunkard from a family of drunkards. He's the first one in several generations that's ever been sober. He's believed on Christ. He's been saved. And we offer him alcoholic juice. At the Lord's table, and He tasted it for the first time in years. And He cooked just by tasting. If you don't believe that can happen, you talk to somebody you used to drink. Paul said that Christian love demands that I never drink a drop of alcohol or even eat any food that would cause somebody to stumble. In fact, Jesus said, if I do cause someone to stumble, I'm in serious trouble. Matthew 18 and verse 6 and 7, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in Me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe in the world because of offenses, for it must be that offenses come, but woe that man by whom the offense cometh. I not know if the Bible warns us about causing others to sin, but it gives an example of people who determined never to drink, even in times when there was no distilled liquor, even in a time when there was no fortified beers and these kind of things. Could I give you some examples? Jeremiah 35, verses 5 and 6. And I said before the sons of the house of the Rechabites, pots full of wine and cups, and I said unto them, Drink ye wine. But they said, We will drink no wine. For Jonadab the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. There's a whole family of people. Or how about Luke chapter 1, verses 15, verse 15? For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. John the Baptist and shall drink neither wine nor a strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. But what about Timothy? 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. Paul writes to him and says, Drink no longer wine, but use a, uh, no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and for thine often infirmity. Apparently, Timothy's commitment not to drink was destroying his health because he had physical problems. He wouldn't even use it as a medicine. And Paul had to write to him and say, Look. Take your medicine, buddy. You might say, "Well, you know, that's the reason I drink." Listen, we got so many messes with alcohol in them. You have to be careful in how you use them. Drink a little Nyquil. About twenty-five percent alcohol, fifty proof. If you're a Christian. If you have any love or any concern for people's spiritual well-being, how can you justify drinking alcoholic beverages? Christian liberty does not allow you to drink. It tells you, you shouldn't do anything It would cause somebody else to stumble. That's what Christian liberty is. And you know when distillation came, distillation came in, and uh, people began to destroy, it began to destroy people's lives. There were some people who said, well, we're going to start a movement and help We're going to start the temperance movement. We're going to encourage people to drink responsibly. That's like the safe sex thing today. It's total folly. In fact, let me read from the testimony of a missionary in 1891, John G. Patton, about the difference between absence and temperance. He said, great good resulted from this total abstinence work. They were encouraging people to make the commitment of total abstinence. Many adults took and kept the pledge, thereby greatly increasing the comfort and happiness of their homes. Many were led to attend church on the Lord's Day who had formerly spent it in rioting and drinking. But above all, it trained the young to fear the very name of intoxicating drink and to hate and keep away from everything that led to intemperance. From observation, at an early age, I became convinced that mere temperance societies were a failure and that total absence by the grace of God was the only sure preventative as well as remedy. What temperance was in one man was drunkenness in another. And all the drunkards came not from those who practiced total absence, but from those who practiced or tried to practice temperance. I had seen temperance men drinking wine in the presence of others who drank to excess and never could see how they felt themselves clear of blame. And I had no minister in others. Once strong temperance advocates fall through this so-called moderation and become drunkards. Therefore, it has been all my life appeared to me, beyond dispute, in reference to intoxicants of every kind, that the only rational temperance is total absence from them as beverages. And the use of them exclusively as drugs, and then only with extreme caution, as they are deceptive, and deleterious poisons of the most debasing, demoralizing kind. I found also that when I tried to reclaim a drunkard or caution anyone as to intemperate habits, one of the first questions was, Are you a pledged of yourself? By being enabled to reply decidedly, Yes, I am the mouth of the objected was closed and that gave me a hundredfold more influence with him than if I had had to confess that I was only temperate for the good of others and for the increase of the personal influence of the servant of Christ I would plead with every minister and missionary every office bearer and Sunday school teacher everyone who wishes to work for the Lord Jesus and the family the church and the world to be a total abstainer from all intoxicating drinks of the common beverage You know, a Little Coffee preached on secret sins. And maybe there's someone here tonight a secret drinker. I hope he's repent us tonight. You know, sometimes when we grow up in fundamental Baptist circles, we don't think this is a temptation anymore. I'll tell you where our kids need to be warned about it. And I'm calling you young people tonight, I'm calling on you to make the commitment to your God. That you'll never, ever taste an alcoholic beverage. I'm calling you to make that commitment. And I'll tell you something. You may think it can't happen to you. But well, everybody knows this here the preacher. Preached in this pulpit, preached in my pulpit, preached to several of this men. He admitted he'd been an alcoholic for seven years, and then stepped down when it became so obvious that it couldn't be hidden. It could happen to you. That's right. Heavenly Father.